This is Looking Forward, conversations about the future of work. Brought to you by Miller Knoll. Hey friends, today we have the pleasure of talking with Phil Kirshner, who's a senior expert in real estate, people, and organizational performance at McKinsey & Company. As you'll hear, I've had the pleasure of knowing Phil for a lot of years, and he's got a multifaceted perspective on the future of work and workplace. Having led workplace strategy for Credit Suisse and also consulted with many organizations in his years at JLL, WeWork, and McKinsey. I always benefit from hearing about how Phil's looking at the world of work and how he advises clients, and I think you will too. Enjoy this conversation with Phil Kirshner. Hey, Phil, it is great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Ryan. I'm thrilled to be here. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and what you do at McKinsey? Uh, Thank you. I am a senior expert that sits between McKinsey's real estate and people and organizational performance practices which is a really fancy way of saying I'm a workplace strategist, as I have been for the past uh, 12 years or so. Um, Our real estate group has grown up from being an industry practice, a vertical, so serving companies in the business of real estate, development, investment, servicing on called traditional management consultancy topics. But uh, round about the beginning of COVID, just <laughs> realized that many companies are now asking about what to do with their real estate. So more as a, as a function or horizontal. And our people and organizational performance practice has been advising clients for decades on agile and org design and diversity and leadership, but also shockingly was never asked about the office before say, March of 2020. And uh, I joined to uh, try to resolve both problems at the same time. So I've been here about a year. That's awesome. Well, I've had the privilege of knowing you, geez, almost 10 years. You have a long history in helping people figure out their real estate strategies. You want to share a little bit about what you did before? 10 years, as we just realized from when I I met you at WorkTech. WorkTech 2012, God, Mm -hmm. uh, in New York. I am an accidental workplace strategist, (laughs) I usually say. I was clipping along at Credit Suisse for many years doing other things like information security, having nothing to do with the built environment whatsoever. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time when in an expense management group when the CFO of the bank then uh, received a report from uh, from DEGW, the firm that many of us in the industry know, the the boutique player for, for future workplace back in the day. He received a report. Took the bait, decided to try workplace mobility and change, and assigned the expense management group that I was in the privilege of running that program, as opposed to the real estate group, which was always very funny at the time. Uh, and I was gaggled together with a couple other people who largely also had no experience in, in real estate or design or architecture to figure out new ways of working for a very traditional kind of company. Uh, so learned by doing, helped build what eventually became a large global program called Smart Working. A couple tens of thousands of people in a few countries in full mobile environments, then went to JLL to try my hand in consulting. And I led the Northeast Regional Workplace Consultancy there, Uh, then went to try to sell consulting services to WeWork and found myself getting hired by WeWork to help lead their workplace strategy practice for about three years, which was an adventure to say the least, Uh, but definitely strengthened my backbone about workplace experience and activation and community even, even more Mm-hmm. resolutely than I already had it. And uh, unfortunately, I got caught up you know, in the, the general shenanigans in the, around the IPO and COVID at WeWork. I was advising on my own for about a year at the beginning of COVID before meeting my, uh, my now colleagues at McKinsey. So I've been here 
just almost a year, which is crazy. Yeah, what a great place to land. Yeah, so I'm 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 one of a few people out there I think who has a really odd mix of practitioner and consulting and service provider workplace without really having done it before. So I only know the new way. I never knew the old way, mm-hmm. whether it's like furniture or leasing or facilities, like flex mobile, wacky and wonderful is the, the, the only the only thing I know and love. Yeah, well, you've seen it from a variety of perspectives, including as that occupier end user and just knowing you the way I do, I know that you love exploring new ways of doing things. And in this case, supporting new ways of working. Um, I think we're in the process where so many organizations are rethinking decades, really, of old assumptions about how their work's done, where their work's done. Can you share with us some of what you're seeing in terms of the challenges that organizations are facing in this arena? Yeah, and, and the challenges certainly are are many. First and foremost, simply and we've all seen this, right? Workers are demanding flexibility and choice in a way that they always maybe wanted a little, but COVID has reinforced the desire that I want to have a little bit of uh, autonomy over when and where and how I do that work. And that desire transcends ages, income levels, demographics, like you name it. Everyone wants a good enough amount of it that it is a problem for employers who find themselves a little bit on the back foot as many of those employees are actively quitting if they aren't getting what they want. And it doesn't have to be the absolute answer to what that flexibility is, but employers who are waffling on the future, what they will or will not be allowed to have, are, are facing a very real challenge. Um, so that's one, I'd say, is the talent. Two, and I know you can appreciate this, like <laughs> the companies that were exploring new ways of working before COVID, in any form, more open, more shared, exploring utilization, like had built a little bit of a muscle for how you do that analysis, had crossed the line with their leadership to understand the difference between someone who like is in the building somewhere versus actually sitting at their desk, uh, who had gone through several rounds of, of what having house rules or workplace protocols mean, like a sign on the wall, how you should use something. If, if you had touched any of that in any amount pre-COVID, you at least had a baseline for what people thought of your office, how they worked, how they wanted to work. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies didn't. They didn't survey, they didn't study either wasn't top of mind, like workplaces, people came to the office just because. So they don't have a baseline. So in this moment where everybody's pattern changed overnight and their preferences changed overnight, they're grasping for like, what should I do now? And in, you'd always say in any industry, right? If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And they're, they're grasping for data that just doesn't exist for them before. And it's so hard then to, to, uh, to know what to do next or to baseline yourself of what was going on before, especially with you know, assumptions of who was or wasn't around or ever working remotely before. And then maybe the, the last one I offer is no matter what any individual company thinks is the right pattern for their people or no matter what they do or don't know about what was going on before, the ship has clearly sailed for certain demographics, certain industries, especially like technology workers, software development, where the trend was already increasing pre-COVID in the sort of adoption of of remote and flexible patterns and and even gig work and like ship sailed. It is not going back for huge categories of workers that almost every company needs, no matter what your current employee base thinks. So it's it, it's a it's a very difficult position to be in where you have multi million dollar decisions on the line. You know, like what do you do when you're staring down the barrel of 
a very expensive lease or a thousand people you're trying to hire in this moment of, of incredible confusion. Yeah, it's probably difficult to easily characterize this, but if you had to describe the mentality or the attitude of the people that you might work with or serve, is it that they feel like they're on their heels and they're defensive and they know they need to do something? Or is there a strong desire to move forward, but they're not exactly sure how? How would you characterize just the mood or the temperament of those that you might come alongside to help? Yeah, I think I think the higher up the stack you go, the more confident people are in the need for change. And one of the clear messages we've been giving to clients is like even more than before where you, you and I probably both said some variation of you need to have IT and HR and real estate at the table together mm-hmm. to make coordinated decisions about the workplace. I think you and I were saying that about a decade ago. Yeah, exactly. Right. The three-legged stool or some other metaphor about those three groups in particular. And uh, I would have advised a client back in the day to say, yeah, you need to have some kind of a committee that looks at this and you all play nice and you make decisions together. That's gone now. This is now a well, same parties, but is is unavoidably a CEO level initiative to cut across the discipline lines. So the further down you go when you get to a head of real estate or a technology leader, human resources leader, like it, it is very difficult in a moment of stress not to like acquiesce to the thing that you know or that you are responsible, you are being held accountable for. Mm-hmm. So in real estate, it is, you know, feeling on the back foot. How do I size this? What do I do about this lease? Or HR, what do I do about people that are leaving or I'm struggling to attract, like the, to think about just one issue. So it really has to be escalated to the to the CEO. And that's what we are messaging to all of our clients. This, this, this um, like it or not, is your job now. That makes sense. Everyone's trying to fit years worth of conversation into months. And it's not like you can just stop what your job is while you yeah. completely figure this out. Right. And I think that's why we're also seeing the advent of new, ideally executive level roles related to what it feels like to work somewhere, mm-hmm. whether that's head of remote, head of dynamic work, head of virtual first, chief employee experience officer, uh, head of future of work, something like that, where kind of delegated by the CEO, someone is put in the middle of that group to mediate, right? Mm-hmm. And cut across the lines and do nothing but think about this problem all day, every day without, you know, without fear that the lights go out in Boston and they get a phone call or like it's HR comp season and they get sucked into that you know, vortex that, yeah, CEO and, and delegated to new and interesting titles related to the, the future of work and workplace. Well, part of this, of course, is that our work has become increasingly digitized and I can't help but notice that Many people want to see work either as entirely digital, like the physical space doesn't exist or it's not important, or it's entirely place dependent. Any thoughts on helping organizations to navigate the role of the physical space as their work becomes more digitized? Yeah, I have a a strong, very strong negative feeling about the word hybrid in particular, which is probably the most common term applied to the situation that everybody finds themselves in. Mm -hmm. Um, Hybrid as defined is, is literally the mix of two things and home office, which just like, it does not cover all the permutations of modalities of work right now in in when and where and how. And so I'm I'm most often advising, I I think the future workplace is kind of virtual first, but by no means placeless. And the reason you have to say virtual first is that no matter where we find ourselves in this world, whether either with someone else or, or by ourselves, 
that the behavior still has to be kind of digitally led. Someone is always not going to be there. And that was probably true before. We all had like our colleague, Mary, based in London, who was always on the phone. 10 people in the room, one person on the phone. And it was a terrible experience to be that person on the phone. We kind of knew that. We sort of knew it. Now we all really know it because Mm -hmm. we've all been that person on the phone. We've had this experience of what it's like when you're not in the room when the conversation is happening or because of the sheer volume of of working meetings now, like disconnected in time from when the conversation happens. So by saying virtual first, it is setting an intention that like, I'm going to behave in such a way that the place doesn't matter. Better behavior around like agendas and planning for meeting or notes after meetings. Uh, Better use of... digital whiteboarding tools instead of the physical whiteboards so that even with all best intentions of being together, when someone, you know, someone gets sick or client travel, like takes them out of the room, that the experience is still inclusive for them. Mm -hmm. And then with with that behavior in hand, if you can get together for what we would say are the, the real moments that matter, great. It's icing on the cake. Everything's better. Usually, right? The connection is like, is better when we have a moment to be together, but that's still, you have to behave digitally because that allows you to be more inclusive of people who aren't there, inclusive of people who can't be there at the same time, uh, inclusive of introverts, uh, inclusive of gig workers maybe coming and going faster inside your organization and don't understand like the cultural norms. And in a way is even, you know, the more digital friendly we are, the more automation friendly we are down the line mm-hmm. as we get better with these kinds of tools. So it's, it is a net positive to have that intention, focus on the, the inclusion of people and then follow with the places that can make the experience even better. Do you think there's a risk then if if organizations don't take that approach that some of that digital transformation work that's happened in the last couple of years could could be reversed as as you know uh, content on a physical whiteboard replaces a digital one or or decisions in a hallway replace those that might be done within a a, a collaboration platform? Yeah, there's absolutely a risk of like sliding back the other way if if people are feeling really stressed in this moment. Um, but we were bad. I mean, we were bad at it before. We, we were really bad at like meeting culture, having unnecessary meetings mm-hmm. or excluding people on the phone, not doing agendas, not taking notes. Uh, but what we are learning from the companies that are the most successfully distributed, largely those that have been doing this since long before COVID, this culture of increased asynchronous communication, increased documentation of how things are done, how we work with each other is critical to sustaining any level uh, of true like distribution in where and when, you know, where we are when we're working, when we are working. It's practices that would have helped us before. Yeah, I'm uh, in line with your thinking. And for me, that doesn't in any way discourage me from thinking that the physical environment isn't incredibly important because we're always somewhere, whether we're alone, whether we're together. I think the physical environment in this world of more digitized working is really important, but it's there to support that highly digital process you described. Hey friends, we'll get back to our episode in just a moment. But first, I want to take this opportunity to let you know that Looking Forward is part of Surround, a podcast network curated by Sandow Design Group. Surround brings together some of the best architecture and design-driven audio content available. So if you like what you hear from us, visit surroundpodcasts.com and check out some of the other great shows on the network. I'm curious, given all of your years and thinking about how the future workplace might evolve, how do you now um, view its primary purpose, the value that it adds um, to individuals and organizations? Yeah, when I was at when I was at WeWork, it, our workplace team was largely 
focused on what was called the powered by we business at the time. So that mm -hmm. was, I would say like, we go to you, not you come to us. Uh, taking all the, the best of what we work knew about design and activation, but going to a client's context and really doing it in a consulting led way, because we're, we're, we're coming to your building. There's lots of space and things we don't control here. So we have to understand quite a lot about you before we go and and like place <laughs> place something into your environment. And after sort of two years of doing that, we looked back and we're looking for like common themes and all of the vision statements, the North Stars, the guiding principles that ever came out of any of those projects. And a kind of shockingly high percentage, maybe like two thirds or a little bit more of all the projects across industries, different regions, at least one of the core, core principles was around connection. And this was 20, you know, 18, 2019. And I'm sure it was informed a little bit by like WeWork's way of thinking about community spaces, but in you know, the, the result of the clients learning about us and us learning about them, that word always sort of bubbled up as something that they were like, we struggle with that. We're really good at collaboration, but that's like, I push paper around better with you than I was pushing paper around before digitally or physically. But our people don't really know each other. They don't really trust each other. Mm -hmm. And we see it in moments like of stress, again, pre-COVID. Um, they're like, so we, we would love to build an environment that is kind of purpose, purposely oriented around constantly strengthening the true human bonds and connection between our employees which was getting harder and harder all the time because in pre-COVID, Zoom, our phones, lots of things were already making it easy for us to just like go down a hole and not, not talk to each other. So I started saying then what I now believe even more, which was that I think the kind of workplace of the future shifting away from the activity-based terminology that we've been using for the last you know, 10 or 20 years is going to be connectivity-based, like connectivity-based workplace, both physically and digitally, uh, which is to say, if I was being assessed every day on, I, I'm not part of McKinsey's corporate real estate team, but like, did, did McKinsey's real estate today work? Did it work? That the, the, one of the salient things I would be quizzing myself on is was, uh, you know, did we increase the connection between our employees and like, yes, our mission, our projects, our teams, our ways of getting help, resources, and maybe even cool cityscape stuff like, you know, transit or, or nature, but ultimately each other. Like, mm -hmm. do you know more people now and are you seeing them, like seeing the real humanity in the other people around you? Because the Band-Aid has been ripped off by COVID. There is no such thing as like work fill and home life fill anymore. They are not the same. Colleagues, people I worked with or worked for me, like, knew I was a parent before. Now they know I'm a parent. <laughs> they know your kids, probably. They know my kids. They know my kids' costumes. They know, they, they they know, know your the, costumes. They know my costumes. They, you know, they know the voice. They've all heard. And I've done it with my colleagues. Like, formal business fail immediately drop into, like, oh, are you okay? Because you're mm -hmm. now crying next to me. Like, parental fail. Like, that, the, the divide is gone. Mm -hmm. So, and we like that. I think actually it's been incredibly engaging. And so the, because we've discovered that the times we want to be together, the so-called moments that matter are largely we oriented, group oriented, most of the purpose for most of the things that we call offices, I think will be to fuel the strengths and bonds, the connections between our employees and the problems that they're trying to solve for themselves and their clients. I love that description. That resonates so true. I have a similar anecdote. Um, about I, costumes? Not about the costumes, <laughs> but about this kind of core 
reason of being for space it, right at the end of 2019 i think it was november of 2019 i got a chance to speak at the festival of innovation in sao paulo and i was asked about the future workplace and i said well can we all hypothetically imagine that we close all of our offices for a couple years and just decide to work remotely and let's imagine <laughs> the good things that would come of it and there were but also some of the challenges we would face and so i kind of posed it to the group um I, by the way i i did catch a little bit of heat uh, several months later like what were you what were you thinking um not that i had anything to do with that but uh that's what people came back to um and i think if i'm being a little hard on the industry, meaning the interiors or workplace industry, maybe we in the past defaulted to you should be in the office to collaborate when we know that you can collaborate quite effectively digitally. But this type of connection, if you think about long distance romantic relationships or any other yeah, relationship yeah, yeah. in our lives, we do crave being together, don't we? We do. I used to go a whole hour from Brooklyn to the Upper West Side in New York to see my now wife. Like we used to call that a long distance relationship. <laughs> um, which you're right. I mean, in, in terms of uh, like embarrassing historical stories, uh, I remember the beginning of the pandemic looking for a document and coming across something I'd written in 2015 for my then boss at Good Swiss about all the reasons why mo mobile workplaces are great. And sadly, in a long list of bullets, there it was like pandemic preparedness. Oh, and wow. I was like, oh, no, it's true. But here we are. Well, let's talk about where we're at, because I think a lot of organizations sense what you're getting at, but might not be able to articulate it nearly as clearly and are in the midst of either encouraging their employees or in some cases actually mandating their employees to spend mm. X amount of time in the office. What do you think? Good approach? Is, is that um, long term going to prove to be successful? I don't think so. No. Um, the mandates, that is. Mm -hmm. um, we were not being told what to do by our employers before, generally. We went to the office because kind of like the thing you did. It's just the thing we all did. You went. It's office-based culture. Sometimes maybe you had to be somewhere else. You traveled for work. You went for training. But like no one was telling you, come in the office. And folks like me, you say, Gosh, it's really weird when you you tell a 22-year-old there's just like come out of college and they've spent four years working in dozens of different places and dozens of different contexts, depending on their mood and what they're doing. Like when they get to your office, isn't it weird that you go sit, like sit here in this one little box for you? Mm -hmm. Like you haven't really told them to show up at the building, but I think it's weird that once they're here, you're like, you should sit exactly in that place all the time. That, that I was like, that's just not going to resonate with them because they're not used to being told what to do. And they're used to having all this choice. Now you're telling them like not have a choice. So like that disconnect has already happened. But now we've had ultimate flexibility. Like we vote with our feet and no longer have to hide the fact that that office that most of us came from probably wasn't so great before. We didn't really love it. So now you're saying like, you must be here is, is almost akin to someone saying, you must eat dinner at this terrible, <laughs> terrible restaurant that is all the way across town <laughs> uh, that you, you know, take you an hour to get to is all the way across town. And you some of your friends may not even be there. So they're going to, they're going to resist. They are resisting now. That is a powerful analogy. And to your earlier point about data, I have had organizations tell me that they're shooting for 70 or 75% occupancy on a daily basis when I think if I if I recall from maybe 2018, 2019, having maybe 60% of people show up to the building, but seeing 35, 40% desk utilization was normal on a given day. It may be that without those baselines, 
the expectation isn't just to see something similar to what was going on in 2019. It might be unrealistically high even beyond that. But what you're saying makes a ton of sense to me. I do have to ask, though, if the restaurant's kind of crappy and we're encouraging people to want to spend quality time together, uh, it sounds like some improvements are are required. Well, yeah, and there's there's a couple of points there. So by the time this comes out, optimistically, I will have written a, a short piece on the framing that I think is more useful in this context, which is instead of telling people you know, where you must be at certain times or trying to manipulate them uh, that way, that what we're not talking about enough is, is choice. And I was inspired a couple of weeks ago when I was reading uh, the book Nudge, uh, Nathaniel and Sunstein's book, and talks about workplace like choice architectures or choice architectures in general, helping us humans like make a decision that is good for us. And that's applied in like picking healthy food, right? In some cafeterias or restaurants, like prominent display. And in the workplace, the term choice architecture was always applied to usually like 401ks. Welcome to McKinsey. You've joined today. Unless you say otherwise, we're going to automatically enroll you in our retirement program, not at Mm -hmm. a crazy level, but at some level, which if you forget that we did that, you won't be so upset. But we know, and lots of science knows, it's good for you. But I think that there's room now to, to... kind of reclaim that work or claim it now, the concept of workplace choice architecture to help people make the decision about where and when and how to do work because going to work was not hard before. Mm-hmm. We got up, we went to the same place, we largely sat in the same seat. The person next to us was there, we knew where the big conference room was, like it wasn't hard. It gets harder when you took the baby step into desk sharing, anyone who ever explored those programs in the office, like which seat do I sit in, how do I behave? Few more choices, but now, It's, do I commute at all? If I do, like maybe I'm probably less likely that I have an assigned seat as offices shrink to react to this demand. Are my friends going to be there? The people that I want to be there? Are we going to be able to get the room that we want to do the thing that we have to do today? Is the weather nice? Is like the transit moving the way I want to? All these, like there's dozens of variables now that go into this decision that we're trying to make in real time. It's really, it's oppressively complicated. And when we are faced with, you know, increased friction, the easiest thing is to acquiesce and just go, nah, I'll stay here. So the onus on employers is to really like take a you know test and learn data driven approach to figuring out as I, as I sort of said earlier the moments that matter the actual activities that objectively result in better outcomes when they are done let's say in real time maybe mm-hmm. virtually but also in person and socializing with employees like sharing those stories and people go hey we the whatever the marketing team have found out that our every two week sort of sprint planning meeting like we've all just anchored like that is always better when we do it in a condensed block of time in front of each other and we throw in lunch you know that these kinds of meetings like work better that if you share those stories that ultimately not only can you have other teams making the same decision but i look forward to the day where uh, we can apply the kind of AI-driven nudge science that is already being used in certain industries, um, like you know the kind of technology that tells a, a call center representative like where to take the call or how someone is feeling based on what they're saying, like this mm. sort of nudging in the background. Can we apply that to the workplace to say, hey, you're supposed to have that like planning meeting with Ryan, and surprise, surprise, Ryan's in New York today, mm-hmm. and maybe you should go. Or you like definitely should go to the office. Would you like me to book a room? Would you like me to get you lunch? Eventually saying, you know, yes, Siri, thank you, right? That's making it easy for us and hopefully 
back to what we said earlier, like a greater scrutiny around meeting culture and in increased use of asynchronous communications in theory means that the act of adjusting our day or days a few days in advance doesn't feel so crazy as it does right now. If my phone suggested go see Ryan tomorrow, like go in to a place you weren't planning to go in for a few hours, yeah. I'd be like, that's bananas. Have you seen my schedule? Like, no way. But my schedule shouldn't be that way to begin with, so that I can actually make a better choice that leads to a better outcome, both for the company and, and for the individual. Yeah, you're you're talking about equipping people to take charge of their own productivity and yes. rethink or maybe think for the first time about the where, the when, the who in ways that maybe we didn't in the past. And the reason why that resonates so much with me is that for organizations that are supporting more flexible working or hybrid or whatever you want to call it, I'm often in a situation where I might have to remind someone, particularly someone senior in organizational leadership, that providing more autonomy to employees is not, should really not be viewed as a concession. Ideally, to whom much is given, much is expected. Those employees now need to be accountable for more goal-based performance metrics, making sure that they're getting their work done, that they're being inclusive of their teammates. And we shouldn't assume that just because we give people more choice that they know how to navigate those choices to provide or produce the, the best outcomes. Right. And the company can still have a, have a perspective. It can be over time a little paternalistic, right? Like you, you can gently nudge someone to make a decision which is also good for you as the company, but it should be based on information. Um, there are already really fascinating tools out there. One called Gong. You heard of Gong? Mm -mm. They I know it a little bit, but they, they listen in on like sales calls. It's like a little agent that sits in the background for a seller hmm. and uh, listens for behavioral changes. Well, it, or even just like words that you use or how long you let the other person speak versus you. And it's connected to your sales system, Salesforce or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that it actually can, you know, can play back to an individual sales representative, hey, did you know <laughs> your colleague over there sells like 10x better than you, but your colleague also uses the word compliance like 10x more than you. And it's playing that back to like guarantee if you try to you know introduce this word or listen a little bit more, speak a little bit less, try it this way, like it's going to have a better outcome for you, which in the case of sales professionals probably means more money in their pocket. We, we are inclined to listen to instruction or, or suggestions if there's a clear path to why it is better for you to take that course of action and not just like you must be in the office three days a week. Well, the notion of a nudge or some sort of automated tool set to do that's provocative. I think based on what you're saying, even as a starting point, helping employees to have a series of questions, who am I spending time with this week? What might be the best location? What type of work setting would lend itself to the sort of work we're doing? Maybe if it's you know, co-creative, uh, traditional conference room isn't going to cut it just to get people beginning to think a little yeah. bit more about navigating choice. Yeah. And you nailed that. And that comes back to the office question. Like instead of going across town to the terrible, oh, I have to go in. The machine has told me that I have to quote, like go in for this activity or I should, I should go meet this person or that, you know, that senior leader that I was on a project once six months ago, who is not based in my town, like is here this week. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. I would like mm -hmm. to see that person. Right? And I, no one's telling me I want to do it, but that doesn't mean I necessarily have to go to the bad restaurant across the town. Maybe it's like go to the nice coffee shop nearby. Being together also does not mean it's in quote the office as we thought of it before. It can be in a, bazillion other places, which are workplaces or not workplaces, but like focusing on the work, the how and the when and like with whom, but but placing less emphasis necessarily on it always being in the same place that was built for one purpose. 
before mm-hmm. or even going forward. I know that I could talk to you for like <laughs> the next hour, but I'm going to, I'm going to move towards a close with one specific question because you commented something to me recently that really got me thinking that companies formed after 2020 or more recently will have a totally different perspective on supporting work. They're not going to be in this sort of transition. Tell me more about uh, your thoughts there. Yeah, it just was like hybrid. I think I had that realization one day after hearing the words like return and return and Mm. return over and over again. Maybe the more I got to know folks in the sort of fully remote ecosystem, thought leaders and practitioners uh, from like the GitLabs of the world, Mm -hmm. Uh, someone like Darren Murph, right, at GitLab, who amazing thought Shout out to Darren. We had him on season one. I know, and I I listened and enjoyed, and Darren is amazing. Um, Having come from the world of advising, you know, boring companies in physical space to learning about someone who uh, advises cool companies in no space. It's a nice, it's a nice departure uh, from my old world. Uh, the more I, I really got to understand that that culture and what was happening, and how so many smaller companies, in particular, and startups, were embracing this at least remote first, if not exclusively, mentality, both for talent because you're like we can get people faster everywhere, and uh, also for cost. Like, why take on the biggest, scariest, longest commitment? cost possibly of our company's lifetime other than like salary within you know weeks of start why that's mm-hmm. crazy when we need space we will get space for the thing that we need the space for mm-hmm. we don't need it all the time and even seeing really enormous tech companies like a stripe the, you know was talking about the remote hub during the pandemic and how mm-hmm. like for reasons of, of of hiring and even kind of like employee diversity not just normal diversity measures, but they were crediting the role of remote workers in, in their case, like uh, we try to have payments everywhere, but now we have an employee in a country where we're trying to implement payment systems and we actually know what it's like to live there. Like, but because we had that one person who we hired for this for no other reason. Um, but like taking all that together is like this return is no longer applicable to those companies. And to anyone who says, and phone clients to me, oh, like, well, you cannot do X, Y, or Z in a full remote context. And we, you know, for our company of a thousand people or something. And then I'd say, well, then look at GitLab, which has 1,500 people in 60 odd, whatever country it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, they went public last year at like a 10 or $11 billion valuation. So they're like a real company. This is no longer just some startup you've never heard of. They're public and they've never had an office ever. So mm-hmm. clearly you can do those things. I'm not saying it works in all contexts for everybody, but like, the next class of like unicorns will be born remote, certainly. I, I think you're right. And one of the things that has given me confidence over the years, because I think my team started looking at remote first companies maybe back in 2013 or 14, is just how many of them actually do end up with not only great home workspaces, which is something I think any organization should think about supporting, but many of them have amazing offices because they weren't conceptualized with any preconceived notion of what the office should be other than what the employees might really love. Yeah, and you're following that. You you may follow... Uh, you know, more like the, the Dropbox studio model now I'm saying, listen, if we have a critical mass of employees, we do like them to be able to get together. We would like to support that, but we're still not building individual workspaces everywhere. Right. Uh, and the companies like a, you know, like a GitLab and even, you know, even WeWork while I was there, like believe in 
large scale, high experience and connectivity in person events that don't have to take place in an office per se. They could be all like off sites, but you get a lot of karmic juice out of two full days spent with someone in a very experiential, like connectivity oriented context. And that could carry you for months of not being around that person, having difficult conversations, doing stressful work. Like, so they, again, they were they were remote first for, for day-to-day work, but that doesn't mean they didn't appreciate the power of being together for the moments that matter. On that note, I will bring us to a close. I'm thankful for you and for the insights you've shared with us. I appreciate you being on the podcast today. Uh, I'm so thrilled to have had this chance and can't wait to hear the rest of the whoever you've got coming up on the, the season. It's really fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Phil.